Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. I find people are very eager to tell their stories. It doesn't take that much to, if you have the time, to allay their fears that you have some sort of agenda. If you can demonstrate that you are genuinely interested in hearing their story and that you'll treat them fairly, most people at that point are pretty eager to talk to you. Welcome to All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media makers. In studio today with me is a co-worker. Scott Massioni is a DOD reporter, defense reporter here at Federal News Radio. Welcome to the podcast, Scott. Thank you very much. I'm actually, for the longest time, I wanted to get you in here and talk about uh, your job, but uh, something's come up, which actually made it a little easier to get you in here. And I wanted to get you in here into the studio so we could talk about your job and what it's like covering the federal government, uh, what it's like covering uh, the Defense Department, the Pentagon. So tell me, how did you become a journalist? Well, as you know, I'm very exclusive, which is why it's it's taken me so long to get in here. <laughs> you sit about six feet away from me. Yeah. So, um, I wanted to become a journalist when I was 15 years old. And um, I was the editor-in-chief of my high school newspaper later on, but um, I got interested in politics and uh, I wanted to make make a change in the world like every I think every journalist does at some point. So I... A 15-year-old's dream. That's right. And um, I interviewed, actually interviewed Ralph Nader for my high school newspaper and he sent me a bunch of books from journalists and uh, that really turned me on to it. He, and he himself did a great work of journalism. You know, he's not a journalist himself, but he kind of turned me on to it and so did my dad and I you know was reading it was a great time for uh well for reading journalism until it kind of all went down down the tubes a couple of years later but uh I, that was kind of how it started I went to college at University of Maryland got my degree in journalism and politics and then a master's in politics at American University so all those things combined just kept feeding the love for politics and journalism and uh then I spent a lot of time covering Eagle Scouts and local news and, uh, you know, old women's 100th birthdays. And eventually I made it here to Federal News Radio and get to cover the big stuff now. Well, and here's the funny thing is your interest was in politics. But, you know, part of Federal News Radio's approach is that we cover the federal government, but not in a political way. So right. for more of a policy way, more of a, you know, budget, you know. Here's the day-to-day -day grind of uh, how the federal government operates. So how is that sort of different from what you set out to do? Well, you know, I never really liked the horse race side of, of politics. I thought that that was a little superficial. So this, I really appreciate Federal News Radio because it has that in-depth look into things. And I actually did an article in November, last November 2016, on the Army's talent management system. And I got to talk to real people and and not just these policymakers, you know, real sergeants and captains. And that article is kind of the epitome of what I really love doing here, which is is talk to real federal workers, real people that are making a difference within the government and trying to kind of change the world, like I was saying. And uh, so I think Federal News Radio gives me a place to do that as opposed to maybe something like Politico, where I'm constantly you know on deadline to just get the next tidbit of news. 
you know, we do break some news stories, but we it's not the same sort of thing because we're not involved in what you said is the the horse race of it. So, you know, tell me about a typical assignment that you go on. What what is it you uh, you know, the process for coming up with stories and how you report them? Sure. Well, before I came here, I was at Inside Defense, which was a newsletter about uh, about the Pentagon. And that sort of made my expertise grow in the defense world. So how I pick articles, it's kind of based on what's going on in the realm in the, at that time. You know, there's always some sort of, there's a cycle that kind of goes with the federal government. And uh, I would say that Defense Department definitely has a certain cycle, but there's also these kind of motifs that kind of come up based on politics, based on policy. And so those are kind of the long-term articles, those motifs. And then the day-to-day, you follow that cycle. You know, the budget, right now it's the NDAA, which is the National Defense Authorization Act. And that's basically the big policy document and law for for the year. So that's the day-to-day that I'm using. But I might see something within that bill about, you know, soldiers that aren't getting proper housing and how one congressperson is trying to change that. And then I might follow that thread to a much bigger story. So it's kind of a a juggle between this sort of a long term and short term game. Yeah, and it's interesting covering the 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 Pentagon because on the one hand, well, on one hand, it's 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 the largest budget, largest section of the budget every year, year in and year out, a budget which they actually don't balance, but that that's another story. <laughs> um, but it's certainly affected by the whims of the political cycle, but a lot of it is just sort of nuts and bolts, you know them doing what they're supposed to be doing, you know, having large workforces, some in uniform, many not in uniform. And then how how do you get that to function under all these different programs? And some of those programs get if, you know, there's a certainly if there's they're amping up a certain branch or or there's a certain technology that they want to spend more on, sometimes those things are are you know, affected by the political whims, but you know, a lot of the stuff is like Every budget is always in there. It's just something that just goes on. It's just like a big yeah. company. And the people who are involved in it, you know, from the servicemen to the to the civilians in, in defense, I mean, they they go through the experience, the same sort of things that anybody working in a large company would have to deal with. That's right. And, and even those day-to-day things can become articles. Gas prices in DOD, something they have to buy every year, gets very controversial. Um, and that's because... DOD buys all their gas every year up front, and then they sell those off to the the services, the gas from DOD as a whole. It's actually the DLA, the Defense Logistics Agency. So, you know, sometimes they, the DOD is able to kind of gouge these uh, the services <laughs> and and make a little profit on their own budget. So there's always politics, even in those tiny little day to day activities. Well, and you think it's about something like climate change, where you know somebody will make a a, a sort of sweeping decision about we're not going to do this anymore. I mean, climate change for the last 10 years or so, that's been kind of a big, you know, deciding a lot of things regarding the way the Pentagon uses energy. Mm-hmm. I mean, how, you know, we need to come up with different types of biofuels to to fuel the Navy because, you know, what happens if we suddenly don't have access to to huge oil reserves? How are we going to, you know, our, how are our fleets going to function or how is the how is the energy grid at a base going to going to go on when, you know if it doesn't have sufficient backups and if, if for long term shutdown so all these you know yes there's politics in it but there's all this other stuff day in and day out with lots of different stories that's one of the things i liked about what you were saying is i mean you can boil all these things down to 
human stories. And I think it's something you really do well with the writing that, you, that you've done about like with the army, like with the airmen and the air force who they've had to, you know, change how many people they're hiring. They're coming up with different ways of maybe laying them off. Um, and those are, you know, there are people concerned about whether they're going to keep their jobs even in the military or civilians in the military. So it gives you that sort of the same approach almost of a community reporter where, you know, this is what your community is. And, you know, you're telling those very human stories. Well, thank you. Yeah. And and I think that's it's a lot more fun that way. Those generals get stuffy and boring and, and so do all those people in suits. So I'd much rather talk to a sergeant who can personify the problem than just keep talking in the same government language. Yeah. And that's why in many ways these stories are much richer than just covering the politics around sort of some of the decision making, you know, you know, OK, the decision is going to be made one particular way. How is it going to impact you know, the the grunt on the street or the grunt in the field. Right. Um, those types of things. So you're in here today because this is going to be sort of a special podcast. Most of the content around it is going to be something from an interview that you did, um, that you brought us some audio, said, hey, this is something I did. Was it something in, that you'd be interested in putting on your podcast? And I said, yes, we're always looking for good content. So why don't you tell me about the interview? Sure. Well, I talked to, to Mark Bowden, who is the author of Black Hawk Down. He has a new book out called Way... 1968, that's spelled H-U-E, that's for those that don't know Vietnamese, which was a battle that ended up being pretty defunct. And, and what's actually really interesting about this battle is that my dad is a Vietnam veteran. His friend, who he went to OCS, Officer Candidate School with, is Nick War, who wrote a book called Phase Line Green about Way. And that book is required reading in the, the Marines when you uh, become an, an officer, I think, or uh, at least somewhere up in the higher ranks because of the way that that, that battle went wrong. So Bowden has a, a certain tact for writing about these battles that seem to be easy tactic kind of things that, you know, it's a go in, go out and end up being a big mess. And I'm sure a lot of people are, are familiar with the movie Black Hawk Down in which, you know, they go in for a half an hour sting and they end up there all night with a lot of casualties. So I, I read Bowden's book, The Black Hawk Down, before and was just blown away by, by the journalism and the way that he could just write these things and just just the amount of detail was just amazing and and so I really I jumped at the chance to interview him to find out how he does it how I can be a better journalist one of the things that really impressed me was the way that he used detail to write in a literary way so you know one guy was shot and he lost his thumb and he explained it to Bowden as a when you hit a baseball on a cold day with the, with the bat, you know, you get that sting in your hands and he writes those little things down and uses it to color his book, to, to build it and make it, you know, not just he got his thumb shot off, but he got his, his thumb shot off and this is what it felt like. So interviewing Bowden was just a, a, a real pleasure and he did an amazing job. He gave us a lot of a great hints on how to be better journalists. Okay. Well, well we're going to listen to that in a second, but it, just to touch on a couple of things that you, you, you talked about in your own writing, what is it you, what is it you try to do when you go cover a story? Well, you know, Bowden, the difference between me and Bowden, at least, is uh, <laughs> lots of years of experience right. and, and, and appeal to press, I think. Sure. I yeah. Lots of, the, of years of experience and also that he has time. And that's one thing he really stressed in this interview is that, you know, when you're working on a book, you have three years to focus on one subject, while I, on the other hand, have a day and sometimes or uh, if I'm working on a special report a couple of months, I don't really get that opportunity to write down those uh, really interesting facts and details and things like that. But I think it's a great reminder 
to every journalist to be aware of those different things because not only are they good for for writing, but they're also good for remembering later on. You know, if someone says, you know, like, you know, my ankle's really bothering me and then five weeks later he's got a broken ankle, you can say, well, he's this, this has been happening for a while now. You know, you catch on to these patterns. So, you know, I think that's one thing that we can really learn from him. And, and also the corroboration of stories. I mean, he is interviewing people who are in the midst of battle and their memories aren't exactly perfect, but he finds a way through through primary sources, through documents, things like that, to actually corroborate his stories to to make sure that he has the correct facts. And he actually goes back and corrects some of the things that are on the record. I think I learned a lot from that in my writing because, you know, it's always important to get two, three, four, five sources if you can. And, um, you know, that was also a, a great reminder for me. Okay. Well, cool. I'm really looking forward to listening to this interview. And so that's what we're going to do now. First of all, I, I just kind of wanted to ask you about your writing process. I mean, the things that you write about are so intensely, you know, kind of convoluted and there's a lot of different accounts. So how do you kind of keep everything straight and, and keep a timeline without kind of go, going insane, I guess, you know? <laughs> well, I think it's a good idea uh, whenever you're writing, especially a complex story, to at all times have a at least a rough idea in your head of the structure of the story that you intend to tell. So, for instance, if you're familiar with Black Hawk Down, you know that it tells the story of a battle that took place over about 18 hours on October 3rd of 1993. And yet, if you read carefully, the book Black Hawk Down actually tells you the story of the whole American intervention in Somalia, which began in the end of 1992 and lasted until early 1994. So rather than write a book called, you know, The American in intervention in uh, Somalia, <laughs> which I think would have, would have been read by about 15 people, right. you know, I choose to, I chose to focus on the dramatic events of the battle itself and then work in the rest of the material into that. And that's an example of how you have to have, I think, a clear idea of the focus of what you're going to write. And that may change over the course of your reporting as you learn more, as you maybe start to think a little differently about the material, but at any given moment, and this is an old habit that I'd started when I was a newspaper reporter, even if I had stopped reporting cold, I could have sat down and, and written a version of that book, uh, you know, and, and at the point where you have made up your mind that you're going to focus primarily on those 18 hours, then you know it actually helps to guide your reporting because you've Need, you, you need to know everything you can possibly find out about those 18 hours, and anything else is going to be dealt with in a fairly summary fashion. So you don't waste a lot of time reporting on events that happened six months earlier or events that happened later. And I would say that that, concept, that ability to conceptualize a story is probably the most important part of not getting confused or bogged down in detail. Going along with that, I was reading your source notes in Black Hawk Down and in Way 1968, and you, uh, you know, you were very lucky when it came to Black Hawk Down because you had the radio transmissions that you could listen to, and I think there was a, another account that kind of had a timeline for things. Right. You know, how did you follow a certain timeline in your other books and other works when there wasn't necessarily that nice kind of uh, layout for you to, to follow. And you have kind of these differing accounts with, you know, one sergeant may say this while a, an officer might say this. Right. Well, those are actually a couple different questions. 
questions. In the case of Black Hawk Down, because it was so intensely focused focused on a fairly short period of time, if I had not had a detailed timeline, literally minute by minute, I couldn't have done that very effectively, and I would have chosen to write it differently. In the the case of Huey, which is a battle that unfolded over almost a month, there was no way that I needed nor could I present information in quite as detailed a a strict timeline fashion. So what you do then is you, you know, you have to form a clear picture in your own mind of the sequence of events and how and why things happen and present them as best you can. You know, that overview is essential, I think, when you when you sit down to start to write. As far as dealing with conflicting accounts, the answer there, I think, is to get as many accounts as, as you can and to check the stories that people tell you against the documentary record. In the case of the Battle of Huey, there is a tremendous amount of material on file at the National Archives. There have been a number of fairly well-researched books on the subject. So there's a great amount of source material that you can bounce individual accounts off of. And then, of course, you know, you look for corroboration or you deal with contradiction when you have two individuals who remember things differently. Right, and I think you did deal with that in Black Hawk Down. There was uh, when the two Delta teams came down to the second crash site. There was one officer that he thought gave Durant a gun, but it was actually the other one. And I think you you noted that. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, and that's an instance of where you know the you know my understanding of events differed from the official account. In that case, you know the, it was the actual Medal of Honor citations given those two men, Gary Gordon and Randy Shugart. And my understanding, based on interviews with people who were there, differed. And so I think you know what you do as a writer then is you tell the reader you know that there are differing accounts and explain why you found one version more credible than the other. I wanted to, to turn to, to Way 1968, your new book. It came out in June two, uh, June 6th, 2017. Right. What kind of brought you to that? It seems like uh, after Black Hawk Down and, and now this, you kind of have an interest in these battles that sort of went wrong or kind of took a, a life of their own. Yeah, you know, I think battles are uh, just rich material for anyone who writes creative nonfiction books, as I do, uh, I think, you know, there's such inherent drama in the case, in both cases, you have instances that had a tremendous impact on American history. So the subject matter is a natural one from my perspective. I don't necessarily seek out all the time military subjects to write about. In fact, you know, of the 12 books I've written, two of them have focused on battles. One was Black Hawk Down and and then then this one, Huey. And and that's partly because of the success of Black Hawk Down, frankly, and, you know, my confidence in being able to tell a story like that made me more inclined to dive into a bigger, even more ambitious uh, battle and try to do the same kind of use, you know, do the same kind of treatment. So I think, you know, in anyone's life, if you have some success with something, you're, I think, more inclined to go back and try and improve on it. Right. Now, you came into Black Hawk Down about two and a half years after the battle, maybe three years, where things are pretty fresh in people's minds. Uh, Way, on the other hand, is almost more than 50 years later. What kind of differences in your interview process and, and kind of challenges did you have to deal with in way compared to Black Hawk Down, especially when it came to people's memories and, and checking the record? 
Well, I did a lot more reporting for Huey, uh, even though I did quite a bit <laughs> for Black Hawk Down. Yeah. I, I think that, as you mentioned, I mean, these were young men who had had a fairly recent experience when I wrote Black Hawk Down, and, and their memories were fairly crisp. Um, and, and I found it was a little bit more uh, varied in tracking down veterans of uh, the Battle of Hue. Uh, some men, even though this happened many, many years ago, retain a very vivid and detailed memory of what happened to them. And that's not unusual. I think traumatic experience does tend to stay more sharply in people's memories. Um, but in some instances, I've, you know, I was dealing with guys who had really only vague memories or did not recall as you know, clearly as you might hope. But I think I remedied that just by talking to more people. I think if you count the number of interviews for the Huey book and contrast them with Black Hawk Down, you've got something on the order of three times as many interviews. And again, you use, you use multiple uh, subjects who relate essentially the same instance to bounce off of each other so you can feel more confident that uh, you've got an accurate version of events. Sure. Now, staying on the 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 sources kind of motif here, uh, in Black Hawk Down, you talked to so many special operators and Delta Force guys, and um, you know, I would say I, I'm a defense reporter also, so there's a lot of reticence, I guess, from especially from guys that are actually in the field doing you know lower level, not leadership, to talk to journalists. And how did you convince? people to talk to you to open up and tell their story. I think that may be something that a lot of journalists have trouble doing, especially when it comes to finding these people and to kind of winning their winning them over a little bit. Well, I have the advantage um, in Scott in that I write books and magazine articles that where I have a lot of time. Uh, so, you know, I can um, get to know people over a longer period. And sometimes it isn't the first time you speak to someone. Uh, it's the second or third where they really open up. You know, and I think persistence is valuable. It, it was hard initially with Black Hawk Down finding the men I wanted to interview, and I got lucky in that, uh, you know, I had interviewed the father of uh, Jamie Smith, the young ranger who was killed during that battle, and and uh, Jim invited me to a memorial service in New Jersey in honor of his son. And many of the men who Jamie had fought with came to this memorial service, and Jim introduced me and asked them to help me. So that broke through, I think, a lot of their reticence in talking to me. And then I think with any group like, say, a special operations unit or the Rangers, uh, once one or two uh, people um, break the uh, wall of silence, more people are likely to come. If you earn the trust of one, you know, they'll recommend you to somebody else. And in general, you know, I find people are very eager to tell their stories, and it doesn't take that much to, if you have the time, to allay their fears that you have some sort of agenda or you're going to make them look foolish or you aren't particularly interested in the truth. If you can demonstrate that you are genuinely interested in hearing you know, their story and that you'll treat them fairly, most people at that point are pretty eager to talk to you. Yeah, that makes sense. I wanted to ask about your interview process in general. Um, you know, I think every journalist can learn a little bit from another one about interviewing and, and what you should do while you're doing that. What is your kind of 
way of just kind of talking to people of making sure you're getting all the facts and keeping them there you know i mean some interviews have to go on for hours especially for your books um so you know how do you just kind of what is your interview process like and and how do you kind of you know just kind of get people's attention and and keep it ask good questions and I generally go into an interview knowing you know the, the subject areas that I want to cover um, and that's a good thing to have in fact I usually write it down but it's a bad idea to sit in front of someone and, and, and ask a list of questions far more important to listen carefully to uh, what they tell you and then let the conversation go in the direction that the interviewee wants it to go. And I'll often, you know, make notes to myself as someone is speaking to make to remember to come back and to ask a follow up question about this or ask a follow up question about that. I try not to interrupt people because I, I want, first of all, I don't want to steer them. I, I want their memories to kind of steer my understanding. Is, that's, I think, the most effective way to do it. And then the other thing is I, I almost always come back after an initial interview with follow-up questions, and I find that most often you begin to get the most interesting insights and material in the second or the third interview you do with someone, in part because the first interview starts them thinking about something that maybe they hadn't thought about as carefully uh, in the past. And then as if you go away, you know, those thoughts are still in their mind. And when you get back to them, they'll say, oh, you know, after I talked to you, I remembered this, or I meant to tell you this. And, and I think that, you know, those approaches are are have been very useful and effective for me sure i've I've actually noticed something kind of similar to that which is after you kind of finish that formal interview someone will kind of be like oh you know i also been thinking about this or you know talking about this and i I think one of the most famous instances of that is jimmy carter when he said he had lust in his heart back that playboy uh interview back in the 70s um you know that kind of happened as they had just finished everything and then he just kind of just kept talking, you know, and, and I think people just kind of ease up a little bit at that point, right? Yeah, they do. And, and I think that at that point, if you've conducted yourself respectfully and, and listened attentively, you've left the person with an impression of you as an honorable individual who is genuinely interested, you know, in what they have to say. And I think a lot of people have a well-founded skepticism or sense of caution when talking to a journalist because it's not often that you're telling a story or saying something that is going to be you know reprinted or broadcast to many many people and so i think it's really um uh, natural for people to feel inhibited and i think that inhibition breaks down when people begin to trust you as someone who you know appears to, to be genuinely interested in number 1 the truth and number 2 their own feelings and and ideas right now now last couple of questions for you i wanted to move into the sort of the writing process you are sort of a literary journalist which can cause you know problems of people think questioning i guess the factual nature of things or i think bob woodward also gets this kind of uh, critique when he recreates a conversation things like that because they may not be 100 percent as they were at what point do you know it's a good idea to put in a sort of creative flourish. Uh, one of my favorite lines of yours in, in Black Hawk Down was when his hand was shot, it was like hitting a baseball on a cold day that it, it really hurt. Um, you know, yeah. you hit it wrong. You know, so how do you know when it's a good time to put in that creative flourish and, and when it's time to really stick to, to the facts? 
always stick to the facts. And in the instance you just described, that was the way that the young man described to me uh-huh. how it felt when he was injured. I think the key is knowing how and rem- remembering to ask those questions. When I'm talking to someone and they tell me a story, like the moment I got shot or the time when I was really scared or, you know, at the time we jumped out of the helicopter. Those, in my mind, register as scenes, as things that I want to be able to depict in my story as they're happening. And so I follow up on moments like those probing for things like exactly how did that feel you know what did that sound like what did it smell like you know what what went through my your mind you know when uh, this was unfolding because i know i'm going to want to write those moments as scenes in my story so i'm alert to those things when they come up in interviews and i really consciously try to flesh them out i try never to add my own uh, speculation about things, at least not without telling the reader that I'm speculating. Uh, you know, if you read a line like, he may have considered this, or, or are indications to the reader that I don't know exactly, but if this is a possibility. And I, frankly, I don't think I do that all that often. I think the key is to always be transparent with a reader to make it clear to them, and this is one of the reasons why my books have source notes, how you know what you know. And I think that as long as you're honest about it, you know, you, I think, earn trust from readers by not adding things or embellishing things. Right. And when it comes to your writing process itself, you know, how much do you go back and edit yourself or do you kind of do a rough draft and then then kind of get everything out and then go back later on or do you do it piece by piece? Oh, I edit constantly. I know I I start writing and uh, very often before I even move on to the next chapter, I'm already revising the first chapter. I think it is important when you're writing a first draft to keep that forward momentum going. But I never stop revising. I never stop calling people back and asking for more information, crafting, you know, choosing better words, crafting clearer, better written sentences. Uh, you know, I work on that right up until the point where I they take it away from me and I can't, I can't work on it anymore. And then I can't stand to read the things that I've written that are published because all I see are things that I could maybe do better or that I'd like to change. So I just think that's probably pretty universal feeling that writers have. Sure. And is there a key part of sentences that you like to look at? I know a lot of people are really focused on strong verbs or, you know, making uh, their nouns more descriptive in, in, in the way that they, you know, instead of saying things, they, so they have to say, a, you know, a fuselage or something like that. Um, right. You know, is there anything that you put kind of uh, really focus on? I think mostly I focus on clarity. I recognize in myself, as I think this is true of most people, a tendency to use more words than necessary to convey information. And so I'm always looking to trim uh, sentences and paragraphs and try to make them as clear as can be. And I do exactly what you describe. I try to be very concrete. I try not to gloss over things. I try to be very specific. Uh, And I try to look for the appropriate language, which is very often not the first thing that pops into your head to describe what it is I'm, I'm talking about. A lot of this, you know, over many years of writing is just second nature. It's, 
you know, just trying. It's why a polished piece of work is better than something that just comes off the top of your head. It's why, for instance, I much prefer to write something than to uh, be interviewed. Next time on It's All Journalism. I think really the key for interviewing anybody is to actually listen. And you kind of have to be prepared, walk into the interview, and then open your mind up and actually listen. I think when people prepare and they have their order of questions and they go through it and they, in their mind, have what they want to do, they're actually not opening themselves up to have an actual conversation, a back and forth, to be open to the fun things that may come out of the interview and to actually laugh sometimes. People say some funny things. Be a human being. Laugh. Be sure to join us next week when Sonia Gavankar, the manager of public relations for the museum here in Washington, D.C., joins us in studio. We talk journalism, fake news, all the good stuff. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, you've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a Down and Dirty Guide to Podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? Do you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you a cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. The Finish the Game Podcast with your host, Sean Alexander. Draw play to Sean across the 10, the 5, touchdown Seahawks! Hey, this is Sean Alexander, NFL MVP. Check out my podcast, Finish the Game, where I discuss sports and life lessons helping you become an MVP. The Finish the Game Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. The Capital Culture Podcast with your hosts, Rachel Nania and Jason Fraley. We have a new podcast called Capital Culture. Each week we go in-depth with chefs like Marcus Samuelson and writers like Bon Appetit's Adam Rappaport. We'll also talk plays with Kathleen Turner, movies with Emma Stone, and music with Smokey Robinson. Not to mention some of your favorite WTOP voices. The Capital Culture Podcast. Find it on iTunes, the Podcast One app, podcastone.com, or at WTOP.com. Search Podcast DC. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, essential plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.